Hey, did anyone have the lights turned off at their place this week? Did anyone have blackouts this week at all? There were some people that were getting blackouts all over California. Some of you in San Juan Capistrano got blackouts. It was crazy that all the electricity just turned off. Like your light switch was on, but the lights went off. There was a lot of talk about that because you heard it was hot. I don't know if you heard it was hot. Uh, did you feel that it was hot? I mean, it's still kind of hot. But it was hot for like a record-breaking like 10 days. I can't believe it. It's amazing. Uh, but it was hot for a couple days. And because of that, everyone needed electricity all at the same time. They needed a lot of power, more than they usually take. And because of that, apparently, California did not have enough energy. And because of that, people's lights went off. Now, it's funny because it's not that they didn't have enough energy. The truth is, it's just that they didn't convert enough energy. I don't know if you know this, but when God made the world, he gave it all the power that was ever going to be in it. I don't know if you know the first law of thermodynamics. It says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. So whatever God put in this universe at the beginning, that's the same amount of energy. UC Davis did a study that said every hour the sun puts enough energy on the planet to power everything that we do for an entire year. Think about that. There's enough sun power, so to speak. There's enough solar power that God gives this planet every single hour that you could actually power every last thing that we use all year long. So the problem was not so much that we didn't have energy this last couple weeks. It was that we couldn't convert the energy. Now, God doesn't just give energy to the planet through sun. He also gives it through all the stuff he put in the ground. He gets it, gives it to us through water, through oil, natural gas, all that kind of stuff that people use. But it's amazing that we, it's not that we didn't have the power. It's that we didn't capture the power and we didn't put the power into action. As much as we could, I guess we did, but we didn't have enough. Now, that same concept is one that a lot of Christians feel like. They feel like they don't have the power to do what God tells them to do. And in some ways, that's accurate because we can't do what God wants us to do on our own. That's true. But the reality is, if you're a Christian, that means you're in Christ, right? I'm not saying if you go to church, you're in Christ. I'm saying if you're a real Christian, someone who has recognized that God is holy, that has recognized that they're sinful, that has turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, the Bible is very clear, you're now in Christ. And now that you're in Christ, if that's true of you, you have all the power that Jesus has in order to live a righteous and godly life. So if you're a Christian and you think, I just can't obey, I just can't do the right thing, I just can't turn from sin, I just can't do these things, if you think that, be careful, because God's word makes it very clear, you actually can in Christ, not on your own, you can't, but through Christ, you have so much more power than you realize. And this morning, we're gonna look at a passage where Paul actually told the whole group of Christians, hey, I don't think you understand all the power that you actually have access to. He says, I know you're not accessing all the power you have access to, but I think some of you don't even know the power that you have access to. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, and I love you for you to grab a Bible and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We've got some Bibles in the back. If you want a Bible, now's a good time. You can get up. I'll stall for you. You can get a Bible, worksheet, and pen. There's Bibles in the back if you want to get some right now. Super important that you see this text. Ephesians 1, do you remember last Three weeks, we covered one big long sentence, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, where Paul told these Ephesians and told us, in effect, how great the salvation that God has brought to us in Christ. He says, you were chosen by God, you were redeemed by Christ, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and now you can be confident that you know him. So God has done all of that, and then Paul says, hey, but I do want to pray for you for some things. I want you to realize what you have. The problem for most Christians is not that they don't have 
enough in Christ. In fact, every Christian has all things in Christ. The problem is they don't know what they have in Christ. We don't access the power that God gives us. Now, here's how he says it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Check it out in your Bible. It says this. For this reason, because of all that he just said about salvation, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Okay, that's another way of saying, because I've heard that you're Christians, which is funny because you think about it, what assures a guy like Paul or a guy like a pastor or whatever, what makes them confident that the people they're talking to are Christians? Well, if they have faith in Christ and they have love for the saints, that's a pretty good indicator that they're in Christ, right? You wouldn't have faith in Christ and you wouldn't have love for the saints if you weren't in Christ. So he says, um, I'm confident that you're saved. But in verse 16, he says, I didn't say, okay, you're saved. Now on to the next people. Now I'm not going to worry about you. Now I'm not going to be concerned about your spiritual well-being. In fact, he says, now that you are saved, i got a lot of things that I pray for you for. Look at verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So first of all, he says, I thank God for you all the time. I thank God that he saved you. I thank God that you're included in God's big plan of salvation. I thank God for you all the time, which if we step back as Christians here now, I hope that's a convicting sentence for you where he says, I did not stop thanking God for you. I hope that's convicting for you. If you're a Christian to think, does my life look like I'm constantly giving thanks for the Christians that God has put in my life? Not just am I thankful for them that they have a relationship with me, but I'm thankful that they have a relationship with God. That's what Paul's primarily concerned about. So he thanks God first, and then look what he does in the next verse. Verse 17, he asks God for something for these people. He says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Right? That sounds like a very confusing sentence because that's a lot of um, you know, big words all in one sentence. What, what is he saying? He's asking God, he says, God, can you please give these Ephesians a deeper understanding of you? That's his main concern, which is interesting. If you think about what people ask you to pray for, sometimes people will say, oh, pray for me. I've got a hard situation with my family, or I've got health problems with my dad or my mom or you know, my grandpa or my grandma. They've got health problems. Pray for me. Although we can pray for those things, do you notice what Paul puts on the top of his prayer list when he thinks about praying for other people? What is he praying for? He's saying, God, can you please just give them more spiritual understanding? That's at the top of his list. I hope that's convicting for us. If you think about all the times you've prayed for your friends and for other Christians, what do you pray for for them? Paul says, I'm praying that you would understand truth, that you would understand the truth from God. He says in the next verse, verse 18, he says, I want them to have wisdom. I want them to have knowledge. I want God's spirit to help them understand things. Verse 18, he gives an illustration. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Right? That's a phrase that you kind of you get what that's talking about, right? Um, your heart doesn't have eyes. So that's just a, an analogy to say, like when we find out spiritual truths, it's like our eyes are open, but not with our eyeballs, but with our hearts. Like we finally understand something about the gospel. Or we finally understand something about God's love. It's like the light bulb went off. It's like the eyes of our heart are opened. That's what he's praying for these Ephesians. He's saying, God, open the eyes of their heart, so to speak. Look what he says next. He says, that you, Ephesians, may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He says, I know a lot of you think that there's hope for Christians, but do you really know the hope to which you're called? Like you might know the facts of the gospel, but has the gospel and the truth of the gospel, has it changed you? 
Like, do you not just know it in your head? Like, oh yeah, you know, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But how has that affected everything you think through? Because if you think about it as a Christian, it should change everything. It should change the way you think. It should change the way you talk. It should change the way you present yourself. It should change your identity. It should change everything about you if you have this hope. So he says, I want you to know that by experience. Look what he says next. He says, not only do I want you to know the hope to which he's called you, middle of verse 18, he says, I also want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's saying this, you have such a big inheritance that all the, the money in the world could not buy. It's so rich, it's so amazing, but some people don't even know they have it. It's like a really, really rich person living on a dollar a day. It's like you, you don't even know what you have in Christ. I want you to know the hope. I also want you to know how rich you are in Christ. I want you to know the inheritance that you have in him. He goes on, verse 19. Here's the third thing he asks for them. He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Okay, so he's asking for three things for these Christians. He says, I want them to know the hope that they're called to. I also want them to know the riches that they have in the inheritance of Christ. And I want them to know for sure what the power is that God is working in them. If you thought God was working immeasurable power in your life, if you thought that, how would you live your life? What would you not do? What would you do? What are the things that you would pursue in your life if you knew the God of the universe was working his immeasurable power in you? What kind of person would you be? You'd be a different kind of person. And that's what he's saying. I want you to understand. Because here's what he's saying. It's already true of you if you're in Christ. But if you're not thinking about it, you're not thinking of the access you have to the power that God has for you. He goes on. He says, according to the working of his great might. Look at verse 20. He, He describes what this power is like. He says, you want to know what this power is like? I'll tell you what this power is like. It's the same power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He says, the same power that God is working in your heart right now, if you're a Christian, that same amount of power, that same energy that God is doing in your life, sanctifying you, making you more holy, that same power is the same power that took Jesus as a dead man and rose him to life. And not just rose him from the grave, but also seated him at the highest place. The resurrection and the ascension. Those are the two theological words we use to talk about those two things. The resurrection and the ascension. That same power right now is working in your heart if you're a Christian. Now think that through. That should change the way you view yourself, the way you identify yourself, the way you present yourself, the way that you interact with people. If you knew that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave was transforming your life, you're going to be a different kind of person. That's what he's getting at. He says in verse 21, describing this power that Jesus has, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Right? We all want to be associated with people that are important. You all want to be associated with people that are, that are fun or cool or powerful or, or wealthy or um, even skilled. You want to be associated with people that are impressive. Right? Everybody does. Here's what Paul is saying. Do you understand that if you're a Christian, not only are you associated with Jesus, who is above every name, above every power, authority, dominion, you are associated with the most powerful person in the universe. That's your God, and he cares specifically for you, and he's working in you and through you. You're not worthless. You're not a nothing. Right? You're really important, is what he's actually getting at here. He says the next thing that he's doing is he 
put all things under his feet. We talked about this in Ephesians 1.10 where we said that Jesus is bringing all things and like putting it in his world, like it's his world, and he's redeeming everything, putting it all back under his feet. When a person becomes a Christian, now they're actually doing what they were meant to do, right? When a person refuses to become a Christian and a person refuses to submit to Christ, God will subjugate them to himself, right? That's a big word, but the the idea is he's taking everyone. If if you're going to be an opponent of Christ, you will still glorify Christ, but you'll glorify him as an enemy of him, as an opponent, as someone that he has to conquer and win and, and judge in the end. He says everything, is going to be one underneath the headship of Christ. But right now, look what he did. He says he gave him, Jesus, as the head over all things to the church. So the most powerful person in the universe was given to us, the church. Jesus is our head. He goes on. He says, which is his body. The church is now the body of Christ. You see how this is a kind of a complicated text, right? It, it kind of just keeps diving deeper and deeper and deeper. He says Christ is the head of his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, here's what he's saying. This is even more confusing, but stop and think about this for two seconds. Um, He's saying this, that the church, Christians, you, says, do you know what you are? You fulfill Jesus who fulfills everything. You fill Christ in a way that he fills everything. Now, think that through. What is he saying? He's saying that without you, without the church, Jesus is lacking something. That's a weird thought right? That Jesus, the God of the universe, could lack anything. He's lacking something in that he has chosen in this big plan to make you the completion of him, right? That is radical. That is something that you do not deserve. I do not deserve. We don't, we're not worthy of that on our own, but Jesus does it. That's a big concept. We'll talk about that more in a minute when we unpack it, but those are the verses we covered, okay? That's a lot. You might be confused, right? I was confused the first time I read this. This is, this is tough, but I think here's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, if you're saved, you need to go deeper. If you're saved and you understand enough to have your sins forgiven and you've trusted in Christ, that's awesome. But you need to continue to grow in a deeper knowledge of God and what he's doing. And if you stop short of that, if you stay an immature Christian, you don't know the power that you have. You'll miss out on the blessings that God has already given you because you don't think you have access to it. And then, obviously, as he's doing this, he's praying for them. So I think there's two sides to this, and it's the two points that we're going to look at this morning. First of all, I want you to see from Paul's perspective, he's praying for his friends to have deeper spiritual understanding. Now, that's the main point of this whole sermon, right, that we want to have a deeper understanding of God's grace. But Paul prays for these people that they would have that, okay? So the first thing I want to get through, first point, I want you to write this down. I want you to start seriously praying for your friends. If we're going to apply this, this is really important. He is praying for his friends, but he's not just flippantly praying. He's not praying sometimes. He's not praying small things. Like, think about what he's praying for. He's praying massive things for them, things that it's even hard for us to grasp. Like, what does he even mean by this? It's hard for us to even understand it. But Paul's praying seriously for his friends. As you write that down, I do want you to think, do you pray seriously for your friends, and what do you pray for them for? What do you ask God for when you think of your friends, or do you ever, right? I guess the first question is, do you ever talk to God at all? And if so, if you do talk to God, what do you talk to God about? Is it me, me, me? I want this, I want this, I want this. Or does it ever include some of these other Christians? It should. And Paul kind of models that for us, right? He says, I was praying for you, and I didn't pray for you once. I can't, I, it's not like I can just say, as Paul, like, oh, I prayed for you last week. I thought of you last week, and I prayed for you, right? He's saying, I was constantly praying for you. 
Every time I thought of you, I was asking God that you would have deeper spiritual understanding. Before we even break down this spiritual understanding, I want you to think through, do you ever pray for your friends? Prayer is a convicting topic, right? Because everyone could pray better. Everyone could pray more. But I do want you to think, if we're going to look at the passage where Paul is pouring out his heart and saying, I'm praying for you guys all the time, do we pray? Um, What you give your thoughts and attention to is what is what you really love, right? Pastor Elliot talked about that this morning if you went to main service, right? The things that capture your heart, the things you get excited about, the things that you can talk all about, those are the things that you're ascribing worship to, right? Whether it be your sport, whether it be your, your assignments at school, whether it be your friends, whether it be things that you want, right, in the future, whether it be a certain college, whatever you could like just at a drop of a hat just start talking about and get all excited about, that's something that you're directing worship to. That's something you, you, you think is important. Okay? Um, what this text is saying is we need to think about God in that way, and we also need to be prayerful often. We need to be praying all the time, thinking about God and praying to God more than we do. Colossians 1.9, Paul says something similar to them. He says, and so from the day that we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's praying the same exact thing for the Colossians. So it's not like the Ephesians had some special need. He's praying for this for all the Christians that he interacts with. The question is, if I were to look at your prayer log, so to speak, if all your transcripts were to be published between you and God, what would I find there? My fear is in a group like this, I'd find a lot of um, leaving God on red, so to speak, uh, a lot of dots in a bubble and, and not much words coming out. I, I would see probably a lot of that. I'd also see probably a lot of, God, help me with this. Help me with that. God, I, you know, I want strength for this. I want strength for that. God, I want this. God, I want this. God, I want this. God, I want this. I want that. Like, that's probably what's going to dominate most of our prayers, right, if we're just being honest. So here's what this text can help you with. Stop having those things dominate your prayers and start focusing on other people when you pray. Start asking God for things for the people in your, your life. If you've got people that you don't get along with, you got people that you don't like, people that don't like you. Do you know what you should do? You should pray for them. You should pray for them. That should dominate your thoughts about them. Anytime you think, oh, I don't like this person. Oh, this person's annoying. Oh, this person's hard. Well, it sounds like they need you to pray for them then, right? If they are really annoying and hard and they're obnoxious, well, then I guess they need even more prayer, right? Uh, I say that only kind of sarcastically because it's true, right? The people in your life that are really annoying that you don't like, I, I would assume they need more prayer than the people that, sh- that you like a lot. But even so, right, the people in your life need to be prayed for. There's a time in the Bible where a prophet named Samuel was talking to a guy named Saul, the king, and Saul, the king, was not a good guy. In fact, he was a bad guy. And in this weird text, Samuel has to walk away from Saul because they were butting heads and they couldn't go any further. And when this happened, people were wondering, like, Samuel, are you giving up on Saul? Are you just going to, like, drop this and never think about him? Uh, Samuel said this, he says, moreover, as for me, this is Samuel 12, 23, 1 Samuel 12, 23, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Far be it from me. I don't want to sin against God. Here's the way that I might sin against God if I stop praying for you. Not if he does anything, not if he calls fire down from heaven on something. No, if he just stops praying. I want us to think about how serious this is. God expects you and me to pray for each other. He expects you to pray for the people in your small group. 
He expects you to pray for your annoying brother or sister. He just expects that. Um, Far be it from you or for me to sin against the Lord by not praying for others. And when you think about your prayers, even if you started talking to God just about people's needs, you could pretty much, if you start talking to people, you could make a pretty big list, right, of things that you could pray for for your friends. Um, here's, Here's another problem that we sometimes get into, that all we do in prayer is ask, ask, ask without recognizing who God is, right? And I think one of the interesting things this text tells us is, what is he doing? What's his first prayer to God? Is it, God, I want this, God, I want this. Paul's first prayer is not that. Paul's first prayer is thanking God for the people that are in his life. That's his first prayer. His first disposition is, God, I want to first thank you for all that you're doing. Before I even ask you for more things and ask you to bless these Ephesians, I want you to know, God, that you're good and that your salvation is amazing, and I want to thank you that you saved those other people. If your prayer is dominated by you, let's get it dominated about others. If your prayer is only dominated by God, give me this, God, give me this, without thanksgiving to God, I think we're missing the mark too. Okay? I think that's what this text teaches us about prayer. It's important to pray for our friends. But the contents of this prayer is really where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Right? The contents, like what is Paul praying for these Ephesians? Because the reality is, um, whatever he's asking for the Ephesians is really what you need. Right? If he's asking for them to have spiritual understanding, that's your biggest need. So as you think about praying for your friends, I want that to sit there and I want that to resonate through this whole sermon because I want you to take everything that you're going to write down afterwards and think whatever spiritual understanding I need, I want to pray that for my friends too, okay? But let's dig into that second part about this spiritual understanding, right? What does it mean to understand and to know these things like Paul's talking about? Well, in verse 17, back in Ephesians uh, 1, Paul asks that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, in your Bible, if you've got an ESV, look at the word spirit. You notice that it's capitalized, right? The reason it's capitalized is because the interpreters, the ones who um, translated this text from Greek, they noticed that there was no article in front of the word spirit, so they thought, okay, this must be a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's possible, right? Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. In fact, there's debate on whether or not this is actually talking about the Holy Spirit. Some people would say, I don't think this is talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's already with them, right? So why would Paul be asking that God's Spirit would be given to them if he's already with them because he already sealed them, okay? So what he might be asking here, and I think this might be a better understanding of this, is that through God's Spirit, Paul was asking, can these Ephesians please have a teachable heart? Can they please be ready to be taught the truth? And can they constantly go back to God? I think that's what he's getting at when he says a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Revelation means this. It doesn't mean apocalypse. It doesn't mean the end of the world. Here's what revelation means, that God revealed something to you. Okay? How, think this through, if you know your Bibles, how does God reveal things to you and to me? What's his primary way that he does that? How does he do it? How does he do it? Check this out, right? Right here, okay? Um, sometimes I show you my Bible um, just so you can see it. Here it is, right? Um, This is the primary way where God expresses himself to you. It's through his word, okay? That is the infallible, inerrant way that he can do it. Sometimes, some people blame their feelings or their intentions or their emotions on the spirit. Like, well, God's spirit made me feel this way. Well, if God's spirit made you feel a certain way that contradicts what God's word says, then that was not God's spirit who who told you to do that because God does not contradict himself, right? For instance, um, 
You know, some people say, I feel like God's spirit really um, led me to, to, to yell and scream at my brother because he needed it. It's like, well, um, is, really? Because like, it seems like God's spirit wouldn't tell you to do that because God's spirit talks about no corrupting talk and only such as is good for building up. So I don't think God would tell you to do that. God's never going to tell you to sin, by the way. So just know that. If anyone ever says they feel led by the spirit to do something and what they're being led by the spirit to do is sinful, they're not being led by the Spirit to do that because the Spirit would never lead them to sin, okay? So just a warning there because a lot of people will use God's Spirit as an excuse for their emotions or their intuitions or their feelings. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches, okay? The Bible does teach that God's Spirit does lead us and he does guide us into truth, but that's just it. He guides us into truth, right? Into truth. So if we're being led in a way that's wrong, don't blame that on God's Spirit, okay? That's just a little warning before we get into this. But he says, I want you to know. I want you to know, no, no. Um, that, that's why, point number two, I want you to write this down. Uh, for if we're really going to grasp the spiritual understanding, I want you to strive to know God's grace in a deeper way. Right? I want you to strive, to work, to try, to make an effort to know God's grace in a deeper way. The reason I say that is because this is not something that happens automatically. Like if, if you're a Christian and you think automatically God's just going to make you a more obedient kid or he's going to make you more loving. That's not how this works. In God's eyes, what he does automatically, so to speak, if you want to use that term, is he declares people righteous in justification. So like when you became a Christian, he did that. He declared you righteous. He said, in God's eyes, you are in Christ, which means you're righteous. Here's what God does progressively over time along with you. Here's what God does. He makes you more holy. So you will not become more holy. I'll just tell you this. Point blank, you will not become more holy if you make no effort. If all you do is sit still, come to church, write down some notes, forget about them, leave, never read your Bible, never talk to God, never pray, never strive to know God better, you will make no progress. Because how could you? Right? You're, you're, there's no effort there. So I do want you to strive to know God's grace, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. He's saying strive to know, strive to understand Right? Give yourself, give yourself an hour of trying to understand God's truth. I mean, seriously, when's the last time you gave God an hour of your time? You were in his word, you're staring at the Bible, maybe you're looking at some, um, you know, good Christian books and trying to understand something that God's word said, right? That takes work and effort, but that's what he's saying. Ephesians, you gotta, you gotta strive for that. And I want you to know that. He says he wants the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. Two passages I'd love for you to write down there. Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, okay? Don't be conformed to the world. So your mind will either be shaped according to the world or according to God's word, is basically what he's saying. If, if all you do, and this is an overstatement, so bear with me, if all you do is listen to what the world says, Go on social media and just hear the message of the world. And that's all you hear. And then you look at your Christian life and you think, why am I not growing? Right? Well, it's because this is not happening. Romans 12, 2 is not happening. He says, don't be conformed to the world. If you let yourself just go and listen to whatever the world says, you will be shaped by the world's thinking. It is a guarantee. That is what will happen to you. But if you're striving and making efforts to, to think about the world like God thinks about the world, well, your mind and your thinking is going to be transformed to that. It's very simple, right? You start hanging out with people, you're going to be like them. You start thinking about things, you're going to start Im implementing that. You start listening to trash, you start listening to bad things, well, bad things are going to start coming out of your mouth. Bad things are going to start happening in your heart, right? It's very simple. 
Even a little kid can understand that truth, right? Garbage in, garbage out. That's what happens. So he says, your eyes of your heart need to be enlightened. Another passage I'd love you to write down there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God. Right? We have God's spirit in our hearts now, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And that passage in 1 Corinthians 2, he goes on to say something amazing. He says, a person who's natural or doesn't have God's spirit, okay, if that's describing you, there are things that you cannot understand about God without his spirit. You just never will get it, right? Holiness, righteousness, it just will If you think, like, I don't understand why Christians think it's such a big deal, you are a perfect illustration of 1 Corinthians 2.14. You're a perfect illustration of it. The natural man cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. You need God's spirit, okay? But now if you're talking about a Christian, right, if you're a saved person, you have now God's spirit, and 1 Corinthians 2.12, the passage I told you right down, the point of that is saying, why did God give you his spirit? So that you would be able to understand the things freely given by God, what he's revealed in his word, what he says about himself. You need God's spirit to do that, and you cannot do that without God's spirit, right? It's as clear as we can make it. The passage says, Paul says, I want you to understand three things. Those are your three subpoints. okay? Um, verse 18 says, I want you to understand and know your hope. And I want you to understand your inheritance that you have in Christ. That's the first thing I would love for you to write down. Um, letter A, point number two, letter A, um, I want you to know your hope and inheritance. Okay? Again, sometimes in a, the book of Ephesians, it's hard for me to have you guys all write these things because I, I am writing these things down on this page, and I want you to write these things down. These are to the perspective of a Christian because Paul is talking to Christians. Right? So I understand that if you don't have Christ and you're rejecting him, you don't have hope. Okay? You don't have an inheritance. I understand. So some of you already know that, and you think, oh, I don't want anything to do with this. I want you this morning to think through what God's word has to say for Christians, and I actually want that to be appealing to you today. I want you to know the hope to which you've been called and the inheritance that you have. After you write that down, I'd love for you to turn to the right in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're going to know the inheritance that you have and the hope that you have, there's another passage that links those two things together. Hope and inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. This is Peter writing to a bunch of people who were basically kicked out on the street. They're called elect exiles because they were removed from their home because they followed Christ and the world didn't like that. The, the Jewish people did not want to accept them, so they were sent out. Okay? Um, so they're going through the worst time of their life, basically. And guess what Peter, the apostle, writes to them? 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. See that? Um, it's the same thing Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God deserves your worship. They're out, they're on the run, they're out of their homes, God deserves your worship. Whoa, <laughs> do you know my circumstance? Do you know what I'm going through? God deserves my worship, right? Yes. If you're going through the worst time of your life, if your family's falling apart, if things at school are falling apart, if your friendships are falling apart, if you're going through the worst time of your life, guess what? God deserves your worship because of this. Verse number three, according to his great mercy. Mercy means that God did not give you what you deserved, okay? Um, that God did not punish you, although you deserved it. That God spared you from something. God's great mercy. That he has caused us, these Christians, to be born again to a living hope 
Okay, so think this through. He says, God deserves worship. He deserves credit in my life because he's caused me to be born again. You understand that the first time you were born, the only time you were born, you had nothing to do with it? Remember that? No, you don't remember that. But think about it, right? Your birthday, right? It's an important day. I watched a, uh, a real Instagram reel of this kid who asked his mom, like, what, what, what month was I born in? And she said, June. And he said, June? Same as my birthday? It's like, yeah. Um, and your kid was like two, so I guess we kind of forgive him. But he was so excited to find out he was born on the same month of his, as his birthday. Um, right? It's good. He's saying, like, you didn't have anything to do with that, right? God's caused you to be born the first time, right? So there you go. But guess what? If you're a Christian, he caused you to be born a second time too. When you were born again, that was not you striving. That was not you trying. That was God saving you. He says, God is merciful because he caused you to be born again. And now, what do you live to? A living hope. A living hope. Uh, we found out this week that the queen died, right? You heard about that, right? The English queen died. And uh, Charles, the next guy in line to the throne, um, now King Charles, right? Um, I don't know if you know anything about that dude's life. That dude is, like, not to be disrespectful, but that dude's kind of weird, right? Um, that, that, that dude did everything he could to throw the crown away, I think. Um, I mean, what he has done in his life, um, other kings at other times would have been completely banned and removed and never been able to get the crown. Uh, but, you know, it's 2022, so what are you going to do? Uh, he's the king. But it's interesting, like, he did everything he could to throw it away. Right? Uh, he got his hope and his inheritance when someone died. Okay, that's sad, right? His mom died. And think about it, I mean, to, to sympathize with them for a little bit, right? his mom just died. And the day after his mom dies, he has to go out and talk to everybody and smile and wave and talk to people the day after his mom died. So he now has this big inheritance. He's the king, right? He's this amazing royal figure now. Everyone's calling him King Charles, long live the king, long live the king. But how did that come about in his life? It came about through death, Right? So it's a mixture. It's not really like a good day. If you ask him, are you having a good day? He'd probably be like, well, not really. My mom just died, right? His inheritance came through death. This is interesting. The fact that you have a living hope, here's what it means. That hope is alive right now. And that hope, what's it centered in? Keep reading. It says, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the, 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 the source of this inheritance is not in death. It's actually in life. Keep reading. He says, to an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance that we're going to, the hope that we have that's connected to this inheritance, it's living. It's alive. It's based in Jesus' life. And it's kept right now. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says, we're looking forward to something that's going to happen. God right now is guarding you through his power to give you this inheritance and this hope when you die. Because guess what? You're going to be alive forever. You're going to be with Christ who lives forever. When you get your inheritance, it's not going to be a mixture of good and bad. It's going to be all good forever. You're going to get the inheritance of Christ when you finally see him face to face. Look what he says next, verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
says, your life might suck right now, and it might be really hard, it might be really bad, but that's just right now. You can go through life that's hard, and things are not what you want, but if your hope is in Christ, it's a living hope. It's not going to be changed. It's not going to go away. God's not going to decide later on that he will not give you the kingdom. He says, no, 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 this is happening. He says, so that, look at verse 7. It says, so that through the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus face to face, and when all of this is said and done, it says, if your hope is in Christ, and if your faith is strong, and it's tested here and now, that's going to result in praise and honor and glory for God on the day we see Jesus face to face. Look at verse 8. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. What he's saying is there's a sense in which you might be saved now, but you're really going to be saved then. That's where your hope is. Here's what Paul prays. Going back to Ephesians 1, here's what Paul prays. I want you to know the hope that you have, that you've been called to, and the inheritance. If you forget what you're walking to as a Christian, if you forget that God has eternal life in store for you, a brand new world where things will be amazing, where we get to restart, we get to build new things and conquer new worlds. If you forget that in a world where Jesus is king and there's no more sin or suffering, no more tears, no more crying anymore because the former things have passed away. If you forget that and you think your life is all about high school, you're gonna be depressed and freaked out and anxious and scared and lonely. You're gonna be all those things, but that is not what you're made for. It's not what you're made for. If you're a Christian, you are made for what we are going to next, your hope, your inheritance. So start thinking about that. Start focusing on that more. That's what he's getting at. Paul says, I want you to know what's coming. Some people, some Christians just walk around and they don't even know what they're headed towards. It's like you're living like there's not going to be eternity. It's like you're so stressed out and anxious and freaked out about right now when you don't think about what you're going towards. If you knew in your confidence was that God was going to bring this perfect world and Jesus was going to reign, and you're cool with that. Your problems right now get a lot smaller. Right? Not that they're not there, not that they're non-existent. Peter says, dude, you're grieved with various trials right now. But it's almost like those things strengthen your faith. They make you even more ready for the day you're going to see Jesus face to face, which is why usually the, the more mature Christians among us, those who've been walking with Christ for, for longer, they're even more excited and ready to meet Christ than those who are just getting started. That should be the way it goes anyway. He says, I want you to know your hope. I want you to know your inheritance. What's the third thing? I want you to know your power. Okay, this is letter B. This is the second thing I want you to write down. I want you to know the power that God is working in you. Know God's power working in you. That's letter B. Know God's power working in you. This is a harder one, right? This, this reminds us back to the beginning about how God has given so much power to the world and um, through solar energy and coal and natural gas, humans are able to access the energy that God's given the world, right? Um, the power that God is giving you and working in you. Here's how I want you to think about it, okay? I want you to write this, these verses down. John 15, 5. John 15, 5. Here's what Jesus says about you and about me. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me Whoever remains in me is close to me. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Here's what he's saying. God has life-giving power that he gives to those who are in him. Remember last week we said, just because things are spiritual doesn't mean they're not real. Sometimes we act like spiritual things are not real things because they're not physical things. There's plenty of things that are not physical that are very real. What's very real is that the Christians in this room are connected to Christ, and who gives you the energy? Who gives you the strength? Who gives you the ability to fight sin? It's Christ. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. But in him, Philippians 4.13 says, you can do all things through him. Right? It's like you're either powerless or you're powerful. There's no in-between. A lot of us think we got power sometimes, we don't have power other times. No, if you're in Christ, you have access to that power because he is the vine, you are the branches. You can't bear fruit without him, but with him, you will bear fruit. Right? That's the hard dichotomy of the Christian life. Without Christ, you can do nothing. But in Christ, you can do a lot because God works in you. Here's another way of putting it. Romans 6.4. Romans 6.4. Paul says in that text, he says, we were buried, therefore with him, by baptism into death. That's a spiritual idea where it's like when, when Jesus died, it's like we were buried with him. Okay? And then it says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, this is a spiritual picture. He says, remember Jesus died and then rose again. In the same way, Christians die to sin, die to themselves, and we are risen by God to newness of life. So the Christians in this room who stopped cussing, who stopped looking at porn, who started doing the right thing, the ones who did that, right, and God changed you, well, God did that. The same power that God rose people from the grave, specifically Jesus, that's the power that he's using in Christians right now to transform you, which is why you can't tell me you're in Christ if there's no transformation. Well, you can't because it just doesn't make sense what the Bible says. I can't say that I'm in Christ if there's no kind of transformation, there's no power, and there's no growth. But the thing is, for those of you who are in Christ, there is power, there is growth. But you've got to remember that you abide in Christ. Paul says it like this. In Romans 8, 11, Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give a life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Okay? Life and mortal, here's what we're talking about in that context, um, morality, right? Um, you can be in a dead fleshly body that wants to do sinful things, but if you have God's spirit in you, you can overcome the flesh, you don't have to sin. You don't have to be the person you used to be because God's spirit is in you. Without God's spirit, hopeless, man. You're gonna keep walking down sinful paths. You're gonna choose between good sin and worse sin, right? Some of you will be good sinners. Others of you will be bad sinners, right? Without, without the spirit, oh, but you still be a sinner. He says, no, no, no. If God's spirit dwells in you, you will be a different person. That's why the goal of God's spirit in you is that you will be a changed and godly teenage person, Okay? Be a godly teenager. That sounds like a paradox for a lot of people, but I, I believe that there are people who are godly teenagers in this room right now because God has changed you. I look at the Bible. I see godly teenagers. Remember we talked about this in one of the sermons in the summertime? Mary, godly teenager, right? How old was she? 14, 15 maybe? When God said, yep, you're going to be the one. That's going to be the mother of the Son of God. See, David as a 15 or 16-year-old, says he loved God. He was a man after God's own heart, godly teenager. See, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, Daniel 1, he's a youth, it says. How old is he? I don't know, 17, 18? He's a youth. But it says he set his heart to do exactly what God wanted. When he went into the evil empire of Babylon, he didn't do what they wanted him to do. 
He stood up. He said, I can't do it. I'm not going to disobey my Lord, which is why I believe, I, I, I believe this and I don't believe the lie of the world. I believe that you can be a godly teenager and that God's spirit can transform you. So here's what I want you to say. Don't believe the garbage lie of the world and unfortunately some Christians that will tell you you cannot be a godly teenager. Don't believe that. It's not true. They don't know what the Bible's saying. The Bible says that if you have God's spirit, you can be a godly teenager. Don't use your age as an excuse. Don't you use your age as a crutch to say, well, I'm just a 14-year-old guy. Nobody can expect me to be holy. Right? God does. God can. Through God's spirit, you can be. Why would God expect a 17-year-old girl like me to, to be holy and righteous? He wouldn't expect that. No, yes, he does. And yes, he's able to make you walk in newness of life. Philippians 2, 12, Paul puts it like this. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, hey, if you're a Christian, keep working hard. Work out your salvation. Right? That's the concept of like massaging something out. It's, it's that idea like you got a knot in your back and someone, you know, is working on you, right? Some of you athletes, you, you, you get knots in your back and you got things that, you know, there needs to be physical therapy for and they just get worked out and worked out. Here's what he's saying. Work out your own salvation. You've been saved. You've been forgiven of your sins. Okay, now stop sinning, right? Wow, how do I do that? Well, through God's spirit. Well, can I do that on my own? The next verse says, for it's God who works in you. You can't do it on your own. But through God, yes, you can, right? Because God's doing it in you. Colossians 1.29, Paul says something very similar. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? That's why sometimes we make this weird dichotomy of doing some stuff in God's strength and in our own strength, right? Well, you can't really do stuff in your own strength, right? You can try, but it's going to fail, right? If you're a Christian, you're doing stuff in God's strength now, right? Whatever good you're doing, it's through God's strength. Paul says, not only do I want you to know the power, but I also want you to think what that power has done. So the, I don't know if you noticed this, but the three prayer requests that he has are actually contained in letter A and letter B. Letter C talks about verses 20 to 23 that talks about how Jesus reigns. Now, this is a big concept, but here's another thing you need to know as a Christian. And not just know like, okay, yeah, check, know that. I want you to understand in a deep way and think about all the implications in your life to this truth. Letter C. I want you to know Christ's supreme authority. Okay? That's what he says next. I want you to know Christ's supreme authority. How does that relate to what we're saying? Well, because he says God's power in you is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and set him at the right hand of God. His supreme authority and his power. He's the one who fills all things and he's the one who makes the church important. He quotes Psalm 8 here. Psalm 8 talks about how God will put things under our feet. That's actually a a passage where David writes about how God has given the world under the feet, so to speak, of you as a human being, right? That's why we can take things that are in the ground and use them and, and animals and plants. God gave those things to you that you would have dominion over them. Not that you would be an abusive tyrant, but that you would be a good steward of the, the world that God has given human beings, right? So he says that, but then he applies it to this. It's like that's what Jesus does with the world. That's what Jesus does with everything. It's like everything comes underneath his feet, so to speak. He says it like this in Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand that until I make your enemies a footstool for you. So even the people that don't submit to Jesus, one day they'll be underneath his feet, underneath his control and his power. We, we quoted this passage a couple weeks ago, but Philippians 2, 9-11, says that every knee will bow to Jesus one day. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
So the, the question for us is, are you going to do that now, or are you going to do that when he, he subjugates the world to himself? That's the question for us. In, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews does the same thing. He quotes the same passage, and he, and he says something interesting about it. I want, I want to read this for you. This is Hebrews 2, verse 8. It says, quote, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't seem like Jesus is the, the Lord of the world right now. It doesn't look like that. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what we see in Jesus right now. But everything is gonna come underneath his feet. He's king of everything. He's king of the world, but let's get specific. He's also putting things like death and sin underneath his feet. Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 says. He uses the same analogy of putting stuff under his feet. It says, for he must reign, this is Jesus, until he puts his enemies under his feet. It's a very Bible phrase, right? Um, the last enemy to be destroyed and put under his feet is death. So death is the enemy of Christ. And one day, Jesus will take death and put that under his feet as well. It says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Quote. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected, he it is, who is expected to put all things in subjection under him. God's going to be the one who does that. Um, here's the point. God's going to put death under his feet. He's going to put all that. But then there's one more thing that our text says is put under his feet. It says right now, we're not put under his feet, but the church is like under his, his head, right? Which is a weird concept, but it's an analogy. When Jesus is called the head of the church, it's like he's the life-giving organ to the church, and he's the one with all authority over the church. What's the church called? His body. So in this word picture, it's like God takes everything, he puts it underneath the feet of him, which is really the feet of the church, and he's the head. Christ is the head, church is the body, everything comes underneath the feet of his body. That's, that's a huge concept. When you start thinking of world politics and philosophy and art and literature, that all of that one day is going to come underneath the feet of Jesus? The answer is yes. It's amazing. Death, sin, all of that. This text about Jesus being the one who fills all in all and us being the ones who fill him is a very hard concept. A lot of people disagree. Um, but if you're in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1.23 says, um, he put all things under his feet and he gave to him as head over all things to the church, right? Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What that's saying is the church, you are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's one way you can put it. Um, we complete Christ in his plan. Christ did not need us initially, right? but in his plan, he set it up in such a way where the church would be the thing that completes him. Um, here's a biblical analogy that we see in scripture. Um, we see it actually in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5 says that we are the bride of Christ. Okay? Um, sometimes when people are married or romantic, you know what they say? You complete me, right? They say things like that. Um, and in some ways, if you've got a relationship that you see where it's like, let's, let's talk about the guy first. If like the girl is like way out of the guy's league and he says, you complete me? You're like, well, yeah, I bet you do, right? Um, I don't, don't know how long that was going to last, right? That's what you say. You say, well, is he rich or something? Like what? Like, wh what? Anyway, um, now think the other way around, right? This one doesn't happen as much. Um, 
but that you see a girl with some guy and think like, how on earth does he like her? Like, she's so mean, right? She's kind of ugly. She's kind of smelly. Like, I, I don't know, like, whatever you think in your little judgmental selves, right, about that girl, right? It's like, what? What is his deal, right? Like, or, or, or they say things like this, he could do better, right? Right? That's, no offense, right? It was funny. It was all funny when it was the guys, but with the girls, it's a big, ooh. Look, both sides are true, right? Um, when, when the Bible calls you the bride of Christ, um, if you were looking from the outside, here's what the world would say. Ooh, he could do better than that, right? He could do better. Because here, here's the principle. Here, here's what the book of Ephesians is saying. The whole Bible is saying this, that God chose you not because you were beautiful, funny, had a good personality, you were attractive. That's not why you were chosen. In fact, you were ugly and you were mean and you were unworthy and you were unfaithful and you were immoral and you were all these bad things, but he chose to set his love on you. That's the whole picture of salvation, okay? Which is why, although it's odd to say that we complete Jesus, we complete him in that way. It's like, I know it's a weird analogy, but it's like if a guy chose a girl who was just like way below his ability, right? Just like, why is he with her? But he set his love on her. And the world didn't quite understand why he would do that. But then in the process, as she's with him, she starts to be much more beautiful, right? This is actually what the Bible says about the church. He says the church initially is sinful and evil, but here's what God does. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says that Jesus loves the church, and he's preparing the church to be spotless and holy and without blemish. And he's making us more holy. That the more we're near Christ, the more beautiful, so to speak, in that analogy, we are. The more pure, the more righteous we are because he chose to love us. So can we step back and say, oh, man, here's why God chose to love us. Because we're really pretty. Because we're really attractive. Because we're really moral. That's not it. When he chose you, you were unworthy. It reminds us of the book of Hosea. It reminds us of all these pictures. Like we even see in the book of Ezekiel where God says, Israel, you were just wallowing in the mud. I chose you. I gave you clothes. I bathed you. I gave you everything. I'm the one who made you pretty. You were ugly before you saw me, but now you're pretty and you're beautiful, right? That's what Jesus says about the church. The same thing's true of you and me, right? We're not worthy. God should not have picked us based on our own merit. But in his grace... God chose to do that. And here's what we are now. We are now an object of his grace. When the world sees you and they know that Jesus loves you, even though you and I are not worthy of that, here's what it does. It makes everyone say, wow, his love must be amazing. He must be really loving. He must love her a lot. That's what it shows the world. That's what it shows everybody. God must love us a lot. Now, he doesn't love us because we're worthy. But I will say, if you were engaged to somebody, um, and everyone started, uh, I don't know, attacking you and saying how bad you were. Um, I hope that if you cared about either one of those two people, right, the fiancé or the fiancé with two E's, uh, that you would care enough to say, ah, oh, th- that person should not be talked bad about, right? He loves her. Stop talking bad about her. Um, he's loved by her. Yeah, she's not the greatest, but like, hey, um, that's his choice. Right? The church is not filled with the great, greatest people in the world, although he makes us great. Um, but when you think about that, um, I hope that that girl, so to speak, in this analogy, uh, does not go home and look at herself in the mirror and just say, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. I hope she doesn't do that. 
hope she says, I'm loved by God. Right? That's the implication. Um, if you're in Christ, if you're chosen in Christ, if you're in him right now, you have this power, you have this hope, you have this inheritance, you have all that. At the same time, I want you to know that as unworthy as you are, you have to remember who God says you are now. He says you're holy. He says you're righteous now. You didn't deserve it. You're not that on your own, but in Christ, now you are. It changes the way you look at yourself. It changes the way that you talk about yourself, the way you even say things about yourself. It changes everything. And in response, hopefully, you'd want to be everything and do everything to please the one who went out of his way to choose you and love you, right? Well, that's, that's the story of the Christian life. We want to do what we can, everything we can now, and say, I want to please the one who saved me. I want to do what would please Christ because he loved me so much. This is a hard text, a hard one for understand, for us to understand, which is why the constant refrain of this needs to be pray continually that you would start to understand more things about God's grace, that you would understand it deeply in yourself. I want to pray, then we're going to be dismissed here. But let's go to God right now and ask him that he would give us more of this spiritual understanding. God, we trust you. We know that your word is infallible and inerrant, and when our minds are not what they need to be. We can trust that your word is truth. We know this is a difficult concept, but we know that you have given us a hope. You've given us inheritance. You've given us power in Christ. I pray that the real Christians in this room would not forget it, that they wouldn't think of themselves as less than that, but also they would remember that they are unworthy in themselves, that we don't deserve your, your grace. We should never presume on your grace. We should never sin that grace may abound. I pray that we'd remember that. And I pray that we would through the access to the power that you've given us, that we would live for you every day, that we please you, that you would change us, and that we'd be more holy, that we'd be more righteous, that we'd be presentable and pleasing in your sight without spot or blemish or any such thing, that we'd be holy. We know that's what you're doing in us, and we pray that you continue to purify and cleanse your church, and that we'd be holy and blameless and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.